Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? And welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box. We are over the hump. We are on episode 51. And we are so excited to be coming to you today to have a discussion about a very specific topic that every coach in every community that I've ever talked to has had uh, a, a, a special interest to. And it's, it's a topic centered around um, uh, US, USU soccer and how it's progressing in this new culture um, of, uh, of, a, of a more professional club structure atmosphere, right? Clubs are spending more time, more investment, more dollars to create a scenario for kids. And what does that do for our kids? How does that impact uh, the game positively or negatively? And I think today we'll have a bit of a negative uh, perspective on some of the things that have been done traditionally across the United States, but a positive perspective on our spin on it all. But before we get to the fun, Andy, Philippe, how are you guys? I've got no complaints for for a very old guy, you know. It's <laughs> Why do you have to keep reminding everybody that you're old? <laughs> it's not so much as I did before. I'm in this like state of permanent disbelief that you know that I can't even come close to doing things physically that I used to do. So it's always in the front and center of my mind. You know, I pick up a cup of coffee and my arm hurts these days. <laughs> <laughs> this is how Andy introduces himself for this episode, but here in a few minutes he'll be complaining that we're uh, um, uh, uh, abusing him for his age. But he started it. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. makes no sense. You, you got to get your punch in first. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's trying to remove it from I, as an opportunity. I, I've got a few jokes. You know that that uh, I, I thought this is you know this is about you know the the motivation. You know, for the game, you know, what makes this game fun? And so, you know, I thought I'd, I'd pull out some loosely connected jokes, you know. And <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> all right, all right, I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, some of them might not be connected at all. <laughs> so, so I, I, uh, I, let's go straight into it. Where does a majority of a boxer's or a hockey player's salary come from? Dentist. The Tooth Fairy. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was close. Yeah. How much fun is that? You know, I don't like getting punched in the head. I don't know other people, but, you know, I'm going to pick soccer 100% of the time over, over boxing. And my dad was a boxer. You know, what happens if Usain Bolt misses his bus? He waits for it at the next stop. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> But it's running in straight lines, isn't it? You know, I mean, how entertaining is that compared to soccer? All right. Number three, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do anything that's going to kill me if I mess up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Number four, I asked my MMA trainer if I could start shadow boxing. You know what he said? Knock yourself out. <laughs> it's really stupid uh, really no, yeah. <laughs> number five what is the most depressing thing about tennis you'll never be as good as the wall <laughs> <laughs> and finally no no not finally swimming is a confusing sport because sometimes you do it for fun and other times, you do it to avoid dying. <laughs> <laughs> and, and finally, two Brazilian jokes in honor of Philippe. Let's do it. This is the first one. I'd like to pay great respect to Neymar for showing the world how to combine three lucrative careers. First, that of a soccer player. Second, an actor and third Olympic diver. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, during the World Cup in Brazil, the English team made a public relations visit to an orphanage. After the visit, one of the group commented, it was heartbreaking to see their sad little faces with no hope. His name was Jiao, age six. 
Who was he referring to? The English team. <laughs> they, they went to an orphanage. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people assume it was the English players that were making the comment. It was heartbreaking to see their sad little faces with no hope. Oh, okay. His so Joel, age six, was looking at the Brazilian players. The Brazilians went oh, to the, at the English orphanage. players. The English players made a visit to the orphanage. You guys okay. are slow this morning. Okay. So no, so my joke was more fun, funnier than yours. My joke was the Brazilian players went to the, the orphanage and the kids were seeing their sad faces. And then João, age six, said that about the players. Oh. Not the players about Did the kids. Did we do that on air some time ago? I'm not sure. No. No. I, I think this is the first time we've done it on air, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a great joke. You know, it went yeah. over great, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think the, the, the crowd is probably just laughing. Yeah, I mean. Hysterically in their cars, they drive to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Addis, not yeah, with yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. All they're, right. They're thinking, this one joke too many. One should, joke too many. He should have stopped at his iron bolt. <laughs> well, that's an improvement because, you know, every time I've done, you know, six or eight jokes before, you said that six or eight jokes too many. So. <laughs> well, a few of those were funny. Um, you know, Philippe, let's have you start this conversation off because this, this, um, this specific topic was your idea. Um, and, um, and, and what gave you, um, you know, what was your, what was your motivation? What was your, was your thought process in terms of saying this would be something worthwhile for us to, to, to chat through? I mean, I think the most beautiful thing about soccer, it's soccer is the most democratic sport in the world. Um, all you need is a ball and a surface. And you can and you can play. And if you go to Brazil and Africa, a lot of times they don't have a ball. They just get socks. They had they get Coca Cola cans, whatever they can find, rocks, and they kick around. So that's the spirit of soccer. That's what soccer is supposed to be. And you know that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing more and more of you know the fancy complexes and you know everything. You know all the information you can track, uh, all the kids' heart rates and everything, all the speeds and you know everything inside of the game. And at age ten, and I don't think that really matters. And I think obviously everybody's seeing how soccer is a money maker all around the world. You look at the professional game is obscene, especially what's happening right now with you know. Saudi Arabia coming to play and even the U.S. starting to, you know, be more aggressive, you know, and all the Brazilian teams are now being bought by big companies and also starting to pay huge salaries as well. So it's it's like everything in the world is a big product, right? But I think when it comes to the to the development of players and to the to the to the kids game it, it shouldn't be that way it shouldn't it should be ac- accessible so you go to the other you know to third world countries and you see that it it's the opposite the the poor kids have more access to the game that a lot of times the the kids that are not poor like my example i was from brazil i was a middle class kid you know i went to school and that was my priority soccer was in my you know spare time which I had my school due diligence to do and all that. Um, and the poor kid in Brazil, they play more soccer than they go to school. They play more soccer than they do everything else. And it's so good for them to stay out of trouble, to stay out of the crime, you know, to to be able to potentially become someone better in life, you know, through soccer uh, from a, you know, confidence perspective because they're not living in a great environment and, also, obviously, financially. So I think we're, we're going backwards. I think soccer participation, and that was what really motivates me to tie back to the question, was when I read an article saying that the amount of money that we're bringing in is like Specifically, 20. yeah, right. Specifically, here you have it in this message to us. U.S. Soccer, U.S. youth soccer participation is finally stagnant. Like it's been on a rocket ship of growth um, for probably my entire lifetime, but it's finally stagnant. Like it has started to level off and plateau a bit. Um, maybe dropping in some areas, some key areas, while revenue is nearly ten times. And like I think that's and that's in the last twenty years, or I think or so, right? Okay. 
I, if my memory serves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and like that is a that is an interesting jumping off point to to determine why is one what what impact or effect that has on the game right less kids are less kids are joining the game or playing um than maybe we anticipated because the growth rate hasn't been what it's been over the last 20 years that means less people are watching the game (laughs) yet the money put into the game the money invested into the game by parents um and and whatnot the revenue is growing at a rate of nearly 10 times um, Andy, you've been around the U.S. soccer game for a really long time and been um, at the forefront of, of, of soccer as, as a business, if you will, right? Going back to your early days in the, in the United States, you, you first started out coaching seven teams. And you were, to your knowledge, I've heard you talk about it before, the first coach that you knew that started to make your entire living out of youth soccer. And so um, if there's anybody qualified to talk about the changes that have happened within American soccer, both from a participation rate perspective, uh, a revenue perspective, a, a business perspective, and the impact that has on development, because that's the lens in which we look at everything. Um, I, th- I think it's probably you that's most qualified to talk on that front. Well, you know, appreciate your faith in me. I think it's largely misplaced, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, it's, um, it's nice to know I've been able to fool at least one person in this world. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about the game, the modern game, is it is incredibly scientific. And, you know, but unfortunately, the science has been applied in such a way that uh, it is designed to find a shortcut to perceived success. And the perceived success is winning. It's, it's a, a simple statistic on the score sheet. And, you know, that is backward thinking. That is really twisted, warped, and it's not developmental thinking. So what we're trying to do is we're, we're taking an egocentric value, the value of winning, you know, so that people can break their arms slapping themselves on the back because their team won a stupid soccer tournament. And we're taking that value, we're making that the central tenet or theme of our coaching. And that is a massive, massive error that the whole soccer community worldwide is moving towards, where everything is measured these days. You know, I mean, it's measured by satellites, would you believe? How far players run in professional clubs, attracted by vests that people wear on their chests, you know, containing little devices, you know, that are beamed up to things in outer space so that our players at the end of the session can look at how far they ran, what speed they ran at, you know, and, you know, it, it's kind of like the joke I just told, you know, about, about Usain Bolt beating the bus to the next bus stop. It's about running, you know, and running is one component and, and definitely not the most important component of the game. Of course, you can't play it without running, you know, but, you know, where does running get you technical skill? Where does this measurement get you any knowledge of, you know, what's going on with the technical skills and the creativity and the beauty and the surprise, you know, all of the things that make life truly worth living, the art, you know, the passion, you know, you know where does just tracking the running get you? It doesn't get you very far. And, and so I put together this, I had a feeling that, you know, you would ask this question. And, and this is, you know, entitled fun, the essential element. Simply put, the young player loves to dribble and shoot. Give her a basketball hoop or a soccer goal, and she will dribble and shoot for many a fun hour. Teach her the fakes, moves, and finishing techniques that allow her to feel her skills constantly improving, and the extra success will help her to love the sport. Dribbling and shooting are the most enjoyable skills. Until approximately age 12, when the dawning of tactical awareness occurs, children are very me-oriented and will get greater enjoyment from activities where they get to be the center of attention over and above those that relegate them to support roles. If the coach focuses on passing and receiving, children are demoted to a less enjoyable support role. However, if dribbling and shooting are encouraged, each player gets center stage. And to use an acting term, the lead role. This satisfies a child's inherent need for self-gratification and the development of a healthy ego. 
go, guys. There's all sorts of stuff you've got to be able to comment on there. Well, I mean, when you think about it from a perspective of, I assume a point that you're making is like, well, of course, like we've seen, let's just use Kansas City as an example, right? Like Kansas City is, has the last statistic I saw, and it's a little old, it's been it's dated by at least a decade, but uh, Kansas City has the second highest participation rate per capita in the United States for youth soccer. So Kansas City is a, is a hotbed for, for play. And within that, um, how long ago was, was the Overland Park Soccer Complex built? 12, 12 years ago? 12 to 15 years 12 ago. 12 to 15 years ago. We invested 36, a city within our metropolitan area invested $36 million to build a 12-field, gorgeous, turf-lit facility. We've talked about it on this, on this podcast before. And then as that happened, um, if you build it, they came. It was a gorgeous place to play soccer. And so uh, participation rate... Pers- participation rate in Kansas City started to grow and so then we built another and then we built another and I think we're now sat at at six maybe all turf complexes of eight or nine fields and more or more um, dotted all across the uh, Kansas City area and more being built and more being built and as a result for the last decade and a half we've seen our participation rate in our local leagues and our local tournaments continue to climb we've seen the clubs continue to swell and every year grow in players and participation and along with that right like the economies of scale or the or economic um, uh, development it costs more right we're charging i don't say we as our club but we as a soccer community are charging uh, more and then we've got to justify that cost. So we've got to make sure everybody's got three uniforms, and then we've got to get the play metrics thing that beams our our speed up to the satellite and all of those things. And the question is that I've had with numerous podcast listeners, specifically um, numerous people all across the United States, and I think the, the what Philippe is getting at is. We're going to start to see, or we're starting to see on a national basis, a plateau in the number of kids playing, despite this increased investment in the game. And the point I think Andy's making, correct me if I'm wrong here, Andy, is that of course we are. Kids come to it at first because it's a new fancy field to go play soccer on, right? And they like the uniform and they love Nike and that's the sponsor. But then they get doing it and they find that it's not as much fun as it should be because we're spending too much time as a soccer community invested in and thinking about soccer in this scientific way and uh, science is science science is, is great and valuable but um if we limit or melt down uh, human human enjoyment to just scientific bar graphs and and everything that goes along with it we take the fun out of it and fun is what um, is at its core should be what a game is, is meant to be played. And am, I, am I on track with the point that you're making, Andy? You, I mean, I agree with you in everything you said, and like, I think I just developed a Brazilian accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody at home's like, that is not Andy. Well, you know why, right? You know why, right? He looked, he looked at me and didn't say a word and looked at me. So I thought he was. No, you're good. Go on, go on, go on, go on. Go ahead. No, no, Philippe, let's hear what you... I don't, I don't I even remember what I was just to facetious say. For, for, I, I didn't mean to bruise your ego. No, carry on, Philippe. I was just joking. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think I think a lot of it Those also Brazilian is... Brazilian prima donnas. Um, a lot of <laughs> oh, it... Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> uh, a lot of it is the, you know, not only the, the, the complexes and, and all that, but all the leagues that the teams have to chase to be in, and then all the travel that they have to make. And when they travel, it's stayed in place. So they are forced to stay at a specific hotel. And like all those little things start adding up. Like, why couldn't three, four families that, you know, are not super privileged cannot, you know, share an Airbnb, you know, or, or do something like that to make it more affordable for them so they can cook their own food so they don't have to eat out with all the kids and all that. So... All these little things, you know, and, and there are ways around it and, and all that, but like it's it, it it's hurting. It's hurting. It's wh- how can we make more money? How can we make more money? How can we make more money? And uh, how can we increase the participation? So, like we talk a lot about the legends philosophy and defining what's su- success and 
you know, I think that the definition of success that the youth, the youth soccer as a whole is having, it's not right. You know, when we're playing soccer, success for us is developing players and taking them to the next level and developing brave career leaders for life, either for them to go to the next level or if they don't, they are brave career leaders for life in any other area. Uh, and it's not just winning games. That's not where we value success and where, that's where most people do. And it's the same here. Like the success doesn't come from the dollar amount. It comes from the participation, the growth and seeing better players at the professional game and growth markets, you know, being able to stay fit, you know, get the benefits of soccer. And, you know, we know how good the sport is regardless, even if it's not taught the best way. We all know the benefits and, sure. you know, we, sure. we, we got to hope that it keeps growing. So I, I think... You know, the challenge that our sport is facing is uh, more than anything the challenge that makes kids move on in, in life. In, you, know, you know, we all have our moments of passion when we're young, right? You know, we, we have our few months where we get excited about, you know, a new topic. You know, and then for whatever reason, you know, after a few months, we go on to something else. And, you know, we're, we're constantly, as human beings, when we're young, we're searching for, you know, what it is that defines us. You know, and, you know, and one of the biggest problems with not staying with something that is really, you know, good, positive, developmental is, is burnout. You know, and... The way in which our soccer environment is structured is it's not organic, you know. So what we're asking kids to do is be, you know, young professionals, you know, when they're eight, when they're 10, when they're 12, when they're 14, you know, we are treating them as though, you know, they are, you know, playing for Real Madrid or Barcelona or Manchester City. You know, it, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense, you know, and instead of, you know, having this be a constant passion and something that they are motivated to do from the inside, you know, we are, you know, asking more of them in terms of their commitment, but we're not rewarding them with what they really want in order to, you know, to, to satisfy their basic needs. And that's one of the, you know, and this is, you know, I prepared this, I knew this was going to come up. How the legends philosophy prevents burnout is what I prepared here. Just a couple of paragraphs. One of the great benefits of the way in which the training soccer legends program works is that it increases player satisfaction and retention ratios to a degree previously unheard of in premier team sports. Another huge advantage is that it prevents burnout. It creates very special players who are capable of winning games with a big play. This type of player enjoys such a high self-concept and optimistic perspective that the chance of burnout is reduced dramatically or removed completely. It is hard not to love a sport and feel good about yourself when you are individually much more skillful than your opponents and your team is collectively far more capable of playing the beautiful game like Brazil, frankly. You know, I'm, I've been a worshipper of Brazil all my life and the way they play soccer. Frankly, it is easy to love soccer and make an extraordinary practice commitment when you know you are outstanding and capable of making the big plays that win games. The high self-concept that the Training Soccer Legends program develops helps kids fall in love with soccer. The result is an almost complete avoidance of the burnout syndrome that occurs in programs that focus on more mundane, less enjoyable, and less self-actualizing aspects of soccer, such as passing, and receiving and more than anything heaven forbid running at practice does that make sense yeah you know I, I, I think that from that bit what stuck out to me is that <clears throat> it feels that I mean I remember as a player Andy you always talk to us about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation right again something that 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 is a life lesson that that can be applied to soccer or anything else and the value that intrinsic motivation provides you in any direction versus an extrinsic, extrinsic motivator. And as you started that, and I was putting, and I was thinking about this topic in general, it feels to me 
oftentimes that in our current culture within youth soccer that's becoming very commercialized, there's all of these extrinsic motivators that we're bringing to the table for our kids, right? Like, like these, the, the extrinsic motivators being, you know, you know, really professional uniforms, right? Um, the extrinsic motivator, the really expensive new Adidas or Nike boots, right? The extrinsic motivator that is a $36 million turf complex to, to come. And all of that is great until it's not. If Because without intrinsic motivation for the kids, without them coming to the, to the session or to the game, because they find the game or the session to be enormously fun and of value. Without that, it's kind of a house of cards that can fold in on itself. Um, and I think that that, that that is the differentiator from my obviously very biased perspective for us as a club is that you know, our facilities are fantastic developmentally, but like we're not investing money to make them the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen, right? Uh, our our kit and our sessions within it, you know, we're not over, we're not scientific in the way that our our sessions are performed with all these extrinsic motivators, right? Like we get out, and we play, and like that's and 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 we play in a very specific way, one v one, two v two, small sided, right? But like it's all I, meant I to would, be. I intrinsic. would say that there's a lot of a lot of study gone behind this, you no, know. No, it, no. So. But you know, I'd say that you know I've delved into this scientifically. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. That's to not, a very deep degree. But we're not we're, we're not pulling out all of these outside pieces to like attach to our kids to run through a session, so the kids or the parents go, "Oh, that must be a really important that that the money I'm spending is really of value because my kid had some." fancy scientific piece attached to them for that session. lights and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. and all, all the yeah. all the extrinsic stuff like right like soccer Cones, soccer ladders yeah all of that stuff 100 percent. yeah, yeah. None, I, none of the stuff you see in street soccer i was chatting to my brother-in-law the other actually last night at a at one of my nephew's football game and my daughter my niece plays soccer at a pretty high level um here in town and i was like how's this coach and he was like oh it's Sessions. I really like his sessions. My brother knows nothing about soccer, but he's looking at his session. He runs all these different drills, and like he he attaches value to the ladders and to the cones and to the 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 GPS tracker and to the you know on and on and on and on and on thing instead of the value to actually the the all the extrinsic stuff versus the intrinsic stuff from you know, my perspective. And, and here's the interesting thing: is that. There are people out there that set themselves up as experts and they come up with all different new vernacular. Yeah. And I've been fascinated over the last few years with this concept of the half space. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, anybody that seems to be in the know in soccer is now using this half space concept. Mm -hmm. Guys, it's a space. It's a smaller space. But it's a space. It gets smaller as you get closer to the goal. But it's a space. It's not a half space or a quarter space or a one-eighth space or a one-sixteenth space. A space is a space. It's a space. Yeah. It's a tiny space. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, and it's, it's exploring the concept of space within your environment. If you're in the middle of the penalty area on a corner kick... It's a space, but that space is six inches bigger than, you know, than, than you know, <laughs> and somebody else's space. You know, in the rest of the field, it might be six yards bigger, you know, uh, you know or 20 yards bigger, you know. And so it's not a half space. If you're going to get really specific, it could be, you know, a, a 180th space, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's a tiny space, you know. But coaches have always tried to impress the layman with the way in which they speak about the game. Oh, this is oh, the it's your biggest. Fault. You're English. Hey. The English did it in the 80s exactly. and 90s. Exactly. Hey. I, I can't argue with that. <laughs> and in Brazil, you know, they, I've seen so many Englishmen that you know use all of the coaching vernacular. And honestly, you know, I walk away thinking that guy really doesn't have a clue. Hey, sounded good. Sounded People are paying him a lot of money, yeah. you know, but it went absolutely nowhere. You can you know? put lipstick on a pig, but it is still a pig. Oh, yeah, it's like that, you know, that, that pissing in the wetsuit example yeah, I gave yeah, earlier yeah, on yeah. in these sessions. Yeah, Gives yeah. you a nice warm feeling, doesn't it's go anywhere. 100%. You know, it's, a lot of this vernacular is that way. It's, it's actually to impress the parents. Mm -hmm. The kids, they're not impressed. They're lost. 
you know <laughs> exactly what you're talking about when you use that you know half space you know but the, but that but that's the point is the kids are lost we're 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 in some in some respects the game on the youth level has become so commercialized that development is the secondary thought the commercial interest of the coach or the club or the parent is the first thought and so what actually provides the kids with the best opportunity for intrinsic motivation which we would all agree across the entire world that that's the most important thing that that's put secondary to make sure that we have the ex- extrinsic piece that that um, looks good and feels good and sounds good to the to the parent who's spending the money and and you introduce the burnout mm-hmm. thing you know the you know put burnout in big quotation marks because burnout is the result of failing to give players enough fun and not satisfying the play characteristic it occurs when practice becomes work instead of fun making practices seem like work instead of fun doesn't mean that players are working harder or getting fitter than when practices are more enjoyable important point most teams include running at the start or end of each practice to get the kids quote-unquote fit this is a huge mistake because the players rarely look forward to a running component this type of practice gets kids fit to run but not specifically fit for soccer. Certainly not soccer right in front of goal. Running in practice is perceived as work, and kids hate it. And I don't like the word hate, but kids hate it. By comparison, any practice that includes tons of deceptive dribbling and shooting is seen as fun. Notice how run and fun are the same except for two letters. You know, when kids get lots of ball touches and are given the license to dribble creatively and take tons of shots, they love it. It is fun. Run is not. It is hated. However, even though dribbling and shooting is hard work and extremely stressful, more stressful and more beneficial than running, you know, am I laboring this point? (laughs) (laughs) It is the most creative enjoyable and playful part of the game this is why kids enjoy practices with a high dribbling and shooting component more than any other it is the fun part it's the artistic part it's the creative part it is the part that kids when they buy toys they love about the toys that they buy or parents that buy the right toys for kids you know they buy the toys that enthrall the kids that keep them involved creatively you know trying different patterns building different things for hour after hour after hour and that's the piece that all of this science and all of these so-called quote-unquote half space experts I'm missing out on completely is it's actually very basic very difficult to do you have to teach incredibly good technical moves you have to you know create an environment that's all about you know finding your way deceptively through incredible defensive pressure being creative being brave taking shots scoring brilliant goals kids walk away totally satisfied from that type of environment and we wouldn't have this downturn in the numbers in U.S. soccer, if it wasn't for the fact you've got all these self-professed experts trying to blindside the parents and certainly the kids, you know, and pretend that they are something special and they're worth paying $100 a month to, you know. And it's, it's, it's a total bait-and-switch job. Uh, speaking of, <laughs> of this, it reminds me of a story. And Andy, I don't know if you remember this specifically, but... It was probably 10 years ago. There was a local uh, municipality that ran a rec program that did a request for a proposal. They reached out to a handful of local clubs to see if anybody wanted to come in and become their competitive arm to their rec program. And we responded, yeah, sure, we'll come out and and pitch it, right? And we had one main competitor. It was a fairly new club. um, And each of us came in and pitched to the Parks and Rec Board. In hindsight, we have a lot of opinions about the value of this type of concept but at the time we thought let's give it a go let's see how that turns out and so we went in there and we gave a full-throated as you would expect if you're listening to this podcast you know explanation of the, the value of deceptive dribbling and goal scoring as a means to teach life lessons right we as a value of building brave creative leaders for life and all that went into it I and mean, we gave them everything we could plus more i think andy and i and kyle spent hours and out days worth of hours on preparing for this presentation um, in reality the value that that was in terms of us just 
really deeply thinking about our program and how best to present it to people that have no soccer background um, was of great value to us. And we went first. We presented first to the to the board. And I remember walking out into the hallway thinking, man, that went pretty well. And the next club went next. And we stood kind of off to the side and watched. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but their entire presentation was built around the three kids they had standing in front of them, dressed out in their full kit about how great their uniform looks and how professional their organization is. And essentially it was a... Here's the fun aspect and, and developmental value um, uh, proposal. And then here's the traditional, look how commercial we can make your, your, your youth soccer rec look, league look, um, um, if you have really fancy, nice uniforms like these. And like, that is like such, a, such a, a specific example of the challenges that I think are occurring on a national basis for the youth game as we've become so focused on the commercial side. Well, when I first came to America, it was I was uh, it was mind-blowing because I could not imagine little kids wearing Nike uniforms with a club that I never seen before and like so many different logos all with Nike sponsors and like I'm like what what the hell is that? Like I wear like a penny wear soccer and we we would play and that's that, that that's the what the coach would give us that was the closest of a uniform i've ever had was a blue penny with the word football that was it you know that, that's what i remember like that's that, that's not a thing uh, obviously when i played in the academy fluminense is sponsored by adidas you know they get all the stuff that the professionals do you know but like even when the looking at the other professional teams besides the big four clubs in Rio, the smaller clubs, not even those clubs are sponsored by the big brands. They're, they're like local stuff that you've never heard of when their whole jersey is that has 27 sponsors because they're paying for everything. But like, it's not, it's not about that. You know, it's, it's, it just, the game is, di was different. Now it's changing. Now they're talking about the final of the cup right now. They made, like a obscene amount of money because they raised the price was the all-time high of a Brazilian game in terms of money and it wasn't even close to the highest attendance it's just like they skyrocketed the price in the moment that Brazil is in a you know financial crisis and all that and it's just it's you know in the professional game you expect that you know and we, that's not what we're here to argue but when 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 it hurts the kids when it makes more expensive for the kids when the kids needs to pay $300 for their uniform kit and then they have to pay X amount for league registration this, league registration that, and fee for card of this, fee for that, fee for that. Fee, it's fee for the fee, you know? Like, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. And then you got to travel and stay at the, that hotel and it costs a ton of money, you know? That hotel, they can go somewhere else. It's like all these little things, like, we, we could try to find a way, you know, there's... The money's there. So now that the money's there, how can we make it more sex accessible? How can we provide good opportunities to the kids that need the most as well? You know. So, sure. so what we've got is, and this is this is a life problem. You know, in Fair. you know, in I think just about every society is infected by it in a terrible way. We've got a um, a two dueling forces that are opposed to each other. One is image, and one is substance. And we are in the youth soccer community, we are in danger of falling for the image approach to the game. You know, the image approach is you have to play for a certain team that's part of a certain organization, and you have to be seen to cross in, go across the country, you know, and 14-hour drives or flights and hotel stays, you know, in order to play, uh, quote-unquote, you know, a certain club, you know, the, the, you know, supposed to be the best club, but not necessarily, you know, in another state, you know, and, you know, and you are not really playing this game at the highest youth level if you are not involved in this incredibly expensive, incredibly time-consuming, and especially to children, draining you know, uh, you know, trek across the country, you know, and, uh, you know, how much skill can, you know, a teenage player learn, 
you know, spending hours on a plane and in airports and transitioning, you know, across the country to play one or two games and then come back again, you know, the, the other way. And, you know, while that teenage player in the United States is wasting all of that time and all of the development that can occur during that time, kids in the favelas of Brazil are playing eight to ten hours across a weekend. Barefoot in a small small space or they're go if they're older, they're going on the weekends in those 11 v 11 dirt fields they're playing against men and they're you know trying and you know learn learning how to handle all the pressure and you know it's still doing their moves they, and they don't care about image you know they're just in there in the dust and the dirt and just you know battling it out and learning ways in which to do to take advantage of the opportunity and beat people and score goals i mean really if there's if there's one thing that that the, the greatest life conundrum for me is i can't figure out how brazil has gotten so good at soccer when their youth kids don't have nice soccer shoes and real uniforms like, i just <laughs> how did it ever happen like you know against all odds it feels like Yeah, you know, I, I how, always how do they get good when they don't have you know 12 big field complexes with artificial turf? Yeah, I mean, like, and all they've got is you know a, a piece of dirt with walls around it. You know, yeah. we should we should spend some time actually researching the Brazilian game and maybe try to imitate it. Here in the United <laughs> States, maybe we're missing. It. No, no, we needed educated Brazilians that they've got it all Let, wrong. Let's you know, copy we, England. Let's copy <laughs> England. We, 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 copy need, England. we need to send Brazil lots of money, you know, and and you know increase their social media try, presence. Let's level the playing field. Let's yeah, try to yeah, level Let's the undermine field. the crap out of the Brazilian <laughs> soccer by giving them everything the US has got, you know, so that they can absolutely be terribly mediocre at the game yeah. in the future. And then you maybe know, we if can you can't beat them, <laughs> And <laughs> force them to join you. You know, yeah, let's do it. You know. <laughs> Next episode on coaching inside the box: How to corrupt Brazilian youth soccer. Well, they already got they already got Johnny Cardoso in international. So, you know that there's an American American player that plays for yeah, international yeah, yeah, in yeah, Brazil. For sure, for sure. Is that the first one ever? Uh, actually, what's his name? Kobe Jones. Did he go play in Brazil? He played for Vasco for like six months and they were like, you suck. <laughs> Kobe's got great hair. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I he's saw a, him. He's an American legend, 135, 40 caps, something like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and this is kind of interesting because, I, you know, I was watching on, you know, uh, this, this morning I was watching Clint Dempsey talking about his, his youth career and how he missed out on great coaching. You know, and I, I think Clint's actually missing the point because he grew up, you know, heavily influenced by a Hispanic environment where coaching wasn't the theme. So he became, you know, wildly creative for an American in that era. Oh, he scored against Brazil in the Confederations Cup final. Do you guys remember the game? U.S. was up 2-0. Lost 3-2, sure do. Yeah, but here's the thing. It's not that hard to score against Brazil. You know, <laughs> they're really good going one way. They're not so good going the other way. Germany can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. Uh, so that's interesting that you put it that way. And I, you're, I think you're right. Like, like Clint, um, Clint was a special and still is a special player from an American perspective. And, and like it, 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 you know, I've watched so many, um, so many videos and YouTube videos and, and, and spotlights on ESPN before a U.S. game, right, where they've talked about it was almost they present Clint Dempsey as that, like, look at him and what he accomplished, what he's accomplished in the game against all odds. And and it's the David versus Goliath concept that Malcolm Gladwell writes um, uh, an entire book about. And it's actually against all odds. It was actually that was that was perhaps what gave him the it's advantage. It's the dumbest over, argument I've ever heard because you else. look you look at all the great players, their odds were way worse. Like look at where Pelé grew up, where Messi grew up, Maradona, like all the Christian, even Cristiano Ronaldo, like the socioeconomics that they, these guys grew up and the access, they didn't have access to all that until a certain age. So, you know? so uh, I don't know if you remember this name, and this is me being a, an old fart. Um, Uh, there was a guy that <laughs> I meant it. Um, there was a guy in uh, in MLS when it first got started called uh, Marco Echeverry. Oh that, yeah, yeah. And he played for DC United. Bolivian. And, yeah, and he was a, he was a wizard of the dribble, and uh, and so um, Paul Gardner, who was a correspondent for Soccer America and and still is, and uh, you know he is um, the most published 
uh, of all the American soccer writers, over a thousand articles in, in Soccer America as of today. And Paul Gardner uh, wrote an, an, a piece. He, he traveled to Bolivia, visited the... Uh, Tahuichi Academy. Tahuichi, yeah, you yeah, got it, yeah. yeah. He, he, he visited the academy and uh, he said he couldn't believe how hard the balls were, you know. And, and he said, and they only had size fours. They didn't have size fives. And he said the fields were just baked. You know, the ball moved so fast. You know, the balls were pumped up so high, you know, and everything was like ping pong, you know, in their practices. You know, and he, he said it was creative. It was fast. It was crazy. It was dirty. And the kids, you know, walked off the field filthy dirty. Absolutely loved it. A bunch of the kids played in their bare feet, you know, and, and he said, and, and he said he'd never seen anything like it. And instantly he realized why it was that Marco Echeverry, and he had a teammate who played for DC United Jaime as well. Moreno? I think it was, yeah, yeah. you know, who, who also came from the Taoichi Academy. And that was what prompted Paul Gardner to, you know, pull out his wallet and spend the dollars to go and visit, you know, that academy, you know. And, and he said it was a complete eye opener because he said they were poor. He said there wasn't any pretty buildings, there weren't any flowers around the fields. You know, he said, you know, it was really subsistence soccer education. He said, but it was all small-sided games. It was all under pressure on a bake surface and the ball moved twice as fast on anything he'd seen in North America. And he said, all of a sudden the light bulb went on and he said, and I realized why it was that, um, that, that these kids from these other cultures where they played all day and all night if they had floodlights you know were vastly superior technically and tactically than the american player and, and this this is a, a fantastic quote from paul gardner he has this to say about dribbling Evidently, there is something irrepressible about the urge to dribble a soccer ball. It is deeply embedded in the game, a central, a core, a key element. While it may be stretching things too far to say that soccer is dribbling, this skill is certainly at the heart of the sport. Soccer is not soccer without it. Dribbling is the most intricate, the most exciting, the most wondrous of soccer skills. It is the creative player's chance to express himself, to add his own touches and flourishes, to inject his own personality into the game. You can see that it is a highly enjoyable skill, both for the dribbler and for the spectators. And it is the most intimate, the most personal of the sport skills. Dribbling is the body language of soccer, and inevitably, no two players dribble alike. Paul Gardner, soccer, soccer Talk. What a fantastic quote. Yeah, it is true, and it's, it's very important, and I think that's very, very, very overlooked. I mean, you, you talked about Bolivia and how the environment is there, and I mean, it's the same in Brazil, it's the same in, in, in parts of Africa as well, and I mean, the fact that they're playing on dirt, they're playing barefoot, they're not worried about their feet getting hurt or you know their their short their nike shorts getting dirty you know and the mom having to do laundry and whatever you know it just give a different feeling of to the game you know they're there all in for the fun they're not worried about anything else nothing's going to disrupt their fun they're so it's like it's funny because we think when we put a super structured practice and we like make the kids focus but this kid is focused. Nothing is distracting him from that fun. He's just playing fun. He doesn't care about the environment. And there, there's actually been a ton of people in Brazil saying about talking about that. You know, we used to have better players too. The kids played on dirt. The kids played in an even surface. You know that creates more proper perception ability. Uh, the ball bounces weird, so you gotta improvise. You gotta read the ball different. You know, so it's just like even. When you, if you, you can argue the other way. You can argue that a quote bad environment can actually be a good environment in a sense. You know, so it's uh, regardless of what you think. If you should play on on dirt or turf or or a futsal court or whatever, I mean, we we have our opinion. You know, you can have yours, but like it's the spirit of the thing needs to be different. It's we we need to let the kids play. We need to make it more accessible for the kids. We we need to shift the focus to what's new, what's best, what's what's great, what's fancy. You know, what's gonna bring in money, what 
can we post on social media and people are going to think it's cool and we'll attract more customers like that's that's not the focus it, so it, it's 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 really intriguing because if you if you give the kids a ball and you know you you send them to the park what are the two skills they choose uh chest traps and <laughs> long balls <laughs> <laughs> Dribbling and shooting. It's Passing back and forth against the wall. I never seen a kid do that willingly. Like, oh, I'm gonna have fun. Mm, let's go pass the ball against the wall. No, they go, they go dribble. Sometimes they go juggle and they go shoot. Those are the three. And then we do a good job of telling, hey, juggling might be fun, but it's not super applicable. Do the other stuff. Yeah, yeah dribbling and shooting combine everything that kids love about sports. Kids love to score and create scoring opportunities. They want the ball. And they enjoy the challenge of matching up with an opponent and testing their capabilities against others. You know, and this is, so in, in art, right? You know, so the world of art, you know, whether it's music, whether it's painting, the world of art, you know, who is the absolute revered hero? You know, the god of art. It's, it's you know, is it the orchestra? No, it, it's who? The, the maestro. The soloist, uh, okay. you know the ma- yeah the maestro the soloist you know it you know if if you look at the you know the the world of you know the concert. You see, I said the word maestro. He even made the table shake. I'm so excited he was. <laughs> yeah, because I just like singer. <laughs> For a moment, you thought you were in Morocco, right? <laughs> no, you know, it, hey, the soloist, the the Amadeus, the person that can set the arena on fire. You know, and Amadeus was a misfit, you know, and, you know, and he had no social graces, but he had the ability to create music, perhaps like no other in history, you know. And so he was tolerated by all these people that paid him incredible money, you know, to come up with these unbelievable themes in his music, you know. And, you know, this is what gives soccer its fun, you know, you know. We go back and forth, Philippe, right, about Neymar. You know, I got to say, I love to watch him. If he's playing, I want to watch that game because he's a soloist. It's, you know, come on, Neymar, get the ball. Come on, Neymar, get the ball. You know, I'm on the edge of my feet just waiting for Neymar to get the ball. And when he gets the ball and passes it, you know, suckers let me down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like, no, you had it. You didn't try anything. You know, I, I wanted to see something beautiful. I wanted to see him at least try and fail. You know, and, and, you know, he's, he's an incredible player. And this is the thing. It's, it's about being a soloist. You know, Vincent van Gogh was a soloist. And unfortunately, Neymar had to be a soloist. He didn't have the help the other guys had. Yeah. You know, and when you come, you know, when you, you drill down into what makes anything truly beautiful, truly fascinating. You know, I, I watch, um, have you ever watched the program The Voice? Yes. Yeah. I, I love when an incredible original singer comes on The Voice because for some reason, I got I to gotta chill up and down my spine just then because I will sit there, I, you know, I'm a bit of a weird guy in some ways, I'll sit there, I'll put my cell phone behind my head because then, you know, you can actually feel the vibrations from the music getting right into your skull, you know, and it's right by, you know, speakers right by one ear, you know, and you can feel those vibrations and I will listen to some of these incredibly original artists on The Voice, you know, and it, it, it transports me to a whole different place. I often do it in those five minutes before I fall asleep, you know, I look, at, I look for somebody new on one of those sites and I listen to a piece of music, you know, and it is unbelievable what the soloist can do. And we are losing in this sea of scientific nonsense, we are losing the focus on the soloist in this sport. And not in the Legends Club, we're all about the soloist. You know, and integrating that soloist into a team concept that is beautiful from a team perspective as well and hugely creative. Nobody is left out in our soloist emphasis. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the takeaway for me as we wrap up this episode is is that it's it's um, if, if we as coaches, right, if you as a listener are thinking, okay, you know, I, I understand the premise or hopefully you agree. You, 
maybe you agree with the premise that uh, the game has been so commercialized from a developmental perspective that in many cases, in most cases, it's become anti-developmental. So how can you combat that in your small corner of the U.S. youth soccer lands- landscape? And, and for me, it's, it's look for opportunities to make it more intrinsically motivated, right? De-emphasize the extrinsic stuff. Um, that exists, the commercial stuff that exists within every soccer nook and cranny, right? We aren't the Tawichi Academy in, in, in Bolivia, for example, but de-emphasize that extrinsic stuff and, and, and give the kids the platform to become the solo, soloist. Give the kids the platform and, the, and encourage them um, and give them the, the tools, the skills, the maestro skills um, to become... Um, brave creative leaders for life initially on the soccer field and then and everywhere else it's because in the, those kids they're the ones that'll bring our society or progress our society society in a direction that um uh focuses on substance and and de-emphasizes um the the noise so so i've got something here that uh, that that you know is is really really important that it's so basic you know that we overlook it this is the ball to player ratio aspect of what we do, you know, and, you know, how, how much, you know, importance we attach to this is crucial in the effectiveness of our practice, you know, in transferring to the game, you know, the ball to player ratio that is needed to make the game both enjoyable and maximally or optimally developmental. So here we go. A tremendous love of the game will also be developed by limiting ball-to-player ratios. That means limiting the number of players to each ball. You know, one to a ball, two to a ball, you know, uh, you know, three to a ball max. At the early developmental stages, an emphasis on one versus one is ideal. This is because every player is guaranteed significant time on the ball, 50%. There are many fun dribbling and shooting games involving a ball each involving a ball each with a wall or between two these games can be conditioned to require a fake of frequent frequent intervals in this way practice can be structured to promote dribbling and finishing thereby maximizing fun and enjoyment conversely a heavy emphasis on teamwork in other words passing and receiving will make practices less enjoyable for the young player and this is a quote by carl young the famous philosopher the creation of something new is not accomplished by the intellect, but by the play instinct acting from inner necessity. The creative mind plays with the objects it loves. You have to, as a mentor in soccer, create a love affair between the player and the ball. Not be a scientific... I'm going to say it, bullshit, yeah. which is what's happening in our society far too much and is destroying, you know, the ability of our kids to be competitive on an international level. Yeah. Hopefully that makes sense. That does. Um, yeah, and, and, and let's be honest, Andy, we, we talk about it all the time. You, who are the most of the kids that make it to the, the highest, highest level come from humble backgrounds right and those are the kids that that need it you know they need the most they have a different hunger and those are the kids that are being pushed away for to the of the game and that's the saddest reality because those are the kids that need it because if they don't have the game probably in the u.s they probably still have a good chance you know they're probably not going to go to a really good high school probably not going to get into a really good college but they might still you know guess somewhere you know and u.s is a first world country and has you know a lot of things to offer so kids might not be you know doomed for life uh in in any way but you know they could have a much better future if they had the opportunities that soccer could provide them you know and it's really sad you know we in our club we 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 do do have a non-profit that helps kids uh with you know, uh, affording some of those travel fees and team fees and, you know, and all that. And I think that's important that I think more people should be, you know, interested in helping kids out in that sense. Uh, because, I mean, the 
the money can come in a different way. If the US start developing more players and the MLS teams start producing more players and selling them to Europe, that's what the Brazilian teams do. Brazilian teams, they develop players and players and players like crazy and they sell two or three to big European clubs every year. That's how they fund all their, their teams. That's how all their teams are making money now and bringing back the 30 plus guys that now they're bringing 20, up, upper 20 guys back, you know, to make the league strong. And it's coming from the, the the academies. It's not coming from anywhere else. It's coming because they're developing players. So the money can still come, but it doesn't need to be. I feel like, like Andy always says, it's looking for the shortcut. We're always the society is always looking for the shortcut. Oh, so let's make this, this, and this, and partner with this, this, and that, and then we can, you know, make more money that way instead of like. No, let's make it more accessible. Let's have more kids playing. Let's invest on ha giving these kids the more opportunities. And once we create those players, once our team is competitive at an international level, once you know we're having players go to Europe and go to big clubs and you know and all that, then the money will come and it will come in the right way. And and there's there's a simple thing that you can do to set up the practice environment for fun. And, you know, this, if you do it, will encourage the maximum deceptive dribbling and finishing possible. And that's position the goals very close together. You know, this is environmental, you know, and, you know, it's just a simple thing, you know, and, but you have to do some work. You can't just turn up and let the goals stay where they are. You know, you've got to get there a little bit early and you've got to move the goals into position. You know, if you're lucky enough to have a, you know, a, a beautiful big outdoor complex w with turf on where you never have to, you know, cancel out because you're not ruining the grass. You know, you have to turn up early. You have to move the goals into place facing each other 20 yards apart. You make a small field, you know, and, you know, and, and so the kids are now all in this crowd in front of the goal and every player is expected, you know, when they're young to f perform a fake prior to shooting or passing to encourage maximal skill of those elite dribbling skills, you know, and, you know, and, and we're not just spouting this, you know, from a position of, of uh, you know, just having conceptualized this and not having done this, because all over North America, the fields inside of our soccer boxes, our indoor training centers are boarded and they are that hugely valuable piece of real estate between the goals right in front of goal under pressure, you know, and where the kid is in a crowd and, you know, you can shoot from everywhere on these fields, you know, and you're always challenged to play at speed, you know, and you're always challenged to be thinking of, can I score first? You know, if not, can I beat a player and score second? You know, and third, do I pass to a teammate? You know, so the priority system is exactly the way it should be. The money skill, putting the ball in the back of the net. Can I, you know, create the money skill opportunity by doing a move and creating the space just to get a snapshot off? Or, you know, can I work with somebody else to get a scoring opportunity? Sure. You know, and so, you know, and that's not happening in, you know, from what I can see, you know, like 95% plus in more than that, maybe even 99% plus of the practices that all of these so-called experts are running around the country, yeah. you, know, you know, because they want to be seen as this mysterious guru, you know, and it's quite simple, really. You know, you make it small, you focus on the most important skills of the game, you know, and you make sure every player has a ton of opportunity to take shots and do dribbling moves and make quick passes and always focus on the penetration. You go relentlessly forward, no retreat. You don't go backwards. You don't go sideways. You know, we want to penetrate all the time in practice because penetration gets you closer to scoring the goal. You know, and scoring the goal is the big play. Yep. You know, that's the one that wins the game. So For sure. Really important. Philippe, Andy, another great episode. Philippe. Well, hold on. I'm not finished yet. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. It's a last one. All right. This is really important. I don't think we've ever done this. Get to all of I think I've heard that before. This yeah. is really important. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> are, you trying you know, to, are you trying to say it's not really important? I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here for seven years. Okay. All right. I will continue, despite the abuse from the peanut gallery. <laughs> <laughs> the marvelous feeling kids get when they are improving at the most important personal creative skills 
usually leads to hours of absorbed play with whatever it is. In our case, it's the soccer ball. As a bonus, as long as you have a wall to shoot against, doing moves and shooting can keep a child enthralled for hours. The greatest players ever, Pelé, Maradona, Leo Messi, etc., have well-documented histories of dribbling and shooting for hours as children. Constant dribbling and goal scoring taught them incredible skills and provided the basis for a greater range of tactical options than the next strata of famous players, as well as a tremendous self-concept and leadership perspective for life. Furthermore, as a natural consequence of long hours of intense dribbling and shooting, they also developed a high level of soccer-specific fitness. The modern-day coach should try to rekindle the kind of passion for the game these players exhibited when they were young. The number one motivational source at the early age is fun, so it makes incredible sense to focus on dribbling and shooting, the two most enjoyable soccer skills. And as I, as I get older, I'm probably learning. What do you notice about the table in front of me? It's empty. I'm finally only preparing enough material. It's taken me years of doing this podcast. It's, it's, taken, it, it's taken you 50 episodes. Yeah. 51 yeah, and, and beyond. I, I've walked away with a big folder full of stuff I didn't get to. <laughs> yeah. you know? I, I, hey, I felt like he was on a mission because he was starting to like, we, we were talking, he would get on a note that had oh, nothing had to do while we were talking before. Yeah. Just like he's trying to he get, get through, through everything. Stuff. Yeah, I was, uh, I was biting my nails because I was afraid I wasn't going to get to it. <laughs> And then I tried to cut you off with one to go. Philippe, Andy, another great episode. Uh, we'll see you next week for episode 52. Thank you, everyone. Can't wait. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.